friends, and welcome to episode 15 of Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. I am one of your hosts. My name is Luke Johnson. I am an assistant professor of dermatology um, with a specialty in pediatric dermatology at the University of Utah. And joining me on the line is my good friend and colleague, Michelle Tarbox. I am an assistant professor of dermatology and dermatopathology at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas. Every two weeks, Dermosphere tries to bring you some of the latest research that we feel is most relevant for clinical dermatology. And due to a variety of extenuating factors, such as recording studio closures for the holiday and Michelle's car breaking down, we have a <laughs> bit of a different audio setup today, so uh, listeners, you can drop us a line at dermospherepodcast.com and let us know what you think of this setup. So today we've got um, a few more articles than normal, but a lot of them are short, so I thought we could squeeze in more than normal. And I'd like to start with two articles about Apremolast. Um, so Apremolast, the brand name is Otesla, in my opinion, is a little bit of a drug in search of a disease no offense <laughs> to the makers but uh, just compared to the other stuff that's out there for psoriasis supremalast is just not usually one that i reach for but it looks like it might have some interesting off-label applications such as uh, the 2k series here so one of them showed it was effective for refractory aphthostomatitis and the other one for refractory generalized granuloma annulare. So I'm going to start with the granuloma, granuloma annulare one. This one is called refractory generalized granuloma annulare treated with oral apremolast. It's from JAMA Dermatology and the authors are out of India. So I apologize to them for mispronouncing their names, but they include Anurada Bishnoi, Keshavamurthy Vinay and Sunil Dogra. Probably could have been a lot worse than that. So they had four patients with generalized granuloma annulare that had failed to respond to topicals and at least one systemic agent, which include things like dapsone, um, systemic steroids, and hydroxychloroquine. All these people in their 40s to 60s. And they thought that this Apremolast idea might be a good one because there was a 2012 study in which 15 patients with sarcoid improved at least somewhat on Apremolast. So another granulomatous condition, so perhaps Apremolast would work for this one too. And all four of the reported patients here had a, quote, substantial positive response with six to eight weeks of Apremolast 30 milligrams BID transitioning to 30 milligrams daily after about three months. So 30 milligrams BID is also the standard dose for psoriasis. And they often will give patients the medicine in this titration updose packet where they start with like 10 milligrams a day and then uh, like 10 and 10 and so on and so on. Um, and so they did the same thing with these folks. And then at 30 milligrams BID, they were stable and did well. They do report that the mechanism of action for a premolast is, quote, speculative for granulomas, but perhaps it's got some efficacy there. And in this particular report, they also say that it has been used successfully for pediasis rubopilaris, discoid lupus, and bechets. And this other article, it shows that it was helpful for treatment refractory recurrent aphthostomatitis. So this case series is out of the New England Journal um, from November of this year, and the authors are out of Switzerland. So again, I apologize for mispronouncing their <laughs> names, but they include Antonios Kulios and Jacob Nilsson. This is out of University Hospital Zurich. 
And so these guys had four, sorry, had five patients, age 30s to 60s. All of them had chronic aphthostomatitis that was refractory to topical steroids and to peocolchicine. So again, the dose of Apremilas was 30 milligrams BID. And after two to six weeks, four of the five patients were clear and one was almost clear based on physician global assessment. And they do report that most of these patients had some GI adverse effects, which is fairly common with a premolast, unfortunately. And one patient had to stop due to the adverse effects, which were headaches and weight loss for that person. And they note that um, they were pretty sure this was aphthostomatitis because they had excluded alternative diagnoses such as Bechet's disease, inflammatory bowel disease, and infection. And Michelle, you might remember that a couple episodes ago, we had another case of like aphthostomatitis, and we were like, how did they rule out Bechet's disease? Mm -hmm. And uh, these guys say specifically, um, they checked HLA B51 in three patients, so that's perhaps worthy of the bell. I think so. We have a new bell. Pimpable content. <laughs> HLA B51 is the HLA haplotype associated with Bechet's disease. Um, so they checked that in a few patients, and they also checked um, pathogy testing in a couple of patients. So apparently pathogy, which is characteristic of Bechet's, pathogy testing is basically you just take a sterile needle and jab it into somebody's skin and then see if they develop like a pustule or a papule there. Um, and then they also did colonoscopy with biopsies, bacterial and viral swabs. Um, so pretty intensely worked up this recurrent aphthostomatitis. Though again, in that article we reviewed a couple episodes ago, in that case it was an allergic contact dermatitis to a component of her dental work, as I recall. Mm -hmm. um, but these guys got better, and maybe we should give it a shot. I did wonder why they picked a premolast for these particular patients with aphthostomatitis. They don't really go into that in the article. Maybe because there were neutrophils in the biopsies. Does that make any sense, Michelle? I think, you know, if you think about the mechanism of action of a primalast and its ability to just interfere with the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines, it could be beneficial for conditions that can involve chronic inflammation. So I could see a way by which it could work. I do think that for a lot of patients, though, the, the side effects can be limiting. In my own experience, I've found that if you slow the titration a little further than what's actually given in the titration up pack, if you actually kind of do it half the speed as they're indicated in, in the titration up pack, you actually... Um, experience a lot fewer GI side effects in the patients, and eventually they get to the same therapeutic dose and seem to have very similar therapeutic effects. So you give them like two of the titration mm -hmm. packets and have and then them like they do back yeah. and forth? Yeah, basically they do like one of the doses a day instead of each of them being the two doses up titrated. Pro tips with Michelle Tarbox. <laughs> I guess we should mention the mechanism of action of a premolast while ringing a bell. Okay, you ready? Ready. So it's a PDE4 inhibitor, which reduces cyclic AMP within cells, which presumably sort of decreases inflammation in kind of a global way. Though that mechanism of action never really was satisfying to me as a resident. Like, why isn't it useful for, like, arthritis pain and the stuff we use ibuprofen for and all that kind of stuff? But that's the idea. Mm -hmm. So what do you think, Michelle? You going to start using a premolast for granuloma annulare or abthostomatitis? I'll say anecdotally, I have kind of in desperation turned to, to a primalast for patients who other agents were, were not working well for just to see if we could find something that gave them benefit. Um, we've had some patients that have this infuriating sort of psoriasis lupus overlap thing, which I would like to call lupriasis. 
<laughs> or psoriapus, maybe. I like but it. You know, um, I found that for some of those patients, permalast tends to work very well. They're very tricky to treat with TNF alpha inhibitors because often the lupus like part of their condition gets worse with the TNF alpha inhibitors. I mean, these are patients that, you know, had this presentation before TNF alpha exposure. So um, I think that there's definitely a home for this particular medication and there's applications by which it can be useful. Um, you know, I can, I can see a way that could work with stomatitis patients and, you know, nothing works well for generalized GA. So if you can find something that helps those patients, I think that's great. And it, props to the company because I know they're fairly generous giving out samples. So if you have some samples that you can try and prove that this works for a particular patient, then maybe you could get it covered by their insurance. Mm-hmm. These articles might actually be helpful in that way. All right. Thanks, Supremalast. <laughs> Not sponsored. This is not sponsored content. All right. So are we ready to move on to something more contagious? I'm ready. All right. (laughs) So contain your enthusiasm. I'm just kidding. So the next journal um, that we're going to review is the Clinical and Experimental Dermatology Journal, which is produced by the British Association of Dermatologists, which has a fun acronym because they are named BAD, which is hilarious. It's Um, a bad group of people. (laughs) (laughs) There's some bad mamadamas. So um, this is a a section in that journal called Viewpoints in Dermatology Correspondence. And the authors are L. Griffin, B. Ramsey, and C. Hackett out of Limerick, Ireland. Um, Limerick. Limerick, I know, it's very fun. Um, So the journal is, the uh, article is titled, Optimizing Preconception Care in Patients on Biologics, MMR Vaccination Status. And it's basically based upon an observation by the authors that uh, a majority of patients who have psoriasis are diagnosed before the age of 45 years, and that increasingly women of childbearing age are being seen in their clinics to receive systemic medication for psoriasis. And they wanted to have people start to think about uh, guidelines on biologic treatment with issues pertinent to treatment of women during pregnancy, but also preconception advice, specifically with regards to the MMR vaccine. And they focused specifically on rubella, um, rubella being a very mild disease that is caused by, ready for the pimpable content, Bill? Ready. A tocovirus, which is a single-stranded RNA virus. It's a positive polarity RNA virus um, spread via respiratory droplets. It is fairly contagious, however, less so than measles. And when adults get it, it's really not that severe of a condition most of the time, but the really Bad things with rubella come from exposure to um, of pr- pregnant women and specifically to their developing fetus um, with this virus, which can cause congenital rubella syndrome, uh, which, you know, reducing congenital rubella syndrome is actually the main aim of rubella vaccination. So if rubella didn't cause the ill effects that it does on developing, feta- uh, developing fetus, I'm not sure it would actually be included in our vaccination protocol because the disease it causes is actually fairly mild. But maternal rubella infection can result in pregnancy loss or major defects in all organ systems, including deafness, blindness, brain damage, or heart defects. And it's actually very, very significantly um, elevated risk factor if a woman is exposed to and gets rubella early in pregnancy. So a woman who gets rubella early in her pregnancy will have a 90% chance of their baby having congenital rubella syndrome, which is pretty significant. Sad. You know, so you really want to be kind of considerate about this. In fact, you know, some of the manifestations of congenital rubella syndrome can actually be delayed up for four, up to four years. And worldwide still, over 100,000 babies are born every year with congenital rubella syndrome. So it's a very significant condition. And the authors want to remind people that while the MMR vaccine has been very successful in the UK and Ireland, as it has been in the US, in both countries, um, 
both um, the measles and um, rubella have been declared non-endemic, which means that it does not have a natural population of infected persons in the country. Um, there is still risk for infection because patients can be infected with international travel and exposure to people who have traveled internationally. So the risk is not excluded um, by the fact that it's non-endemic to these countries. They do kind of highlight a little bit that the, mass, the, the last major rubella epidemic in the United States happened in the 60s, from 1964 to 1965. Twelve and a half million people got rubella. 11,000 pregnant women lost their babies. Over 2,000 newborns died, and 20,000 babies were born with congenital rubella syndrome. So in an unvaccinated population, this can be a very devastating illness. But I'm today, convinced. Yeah, Let's keep vaccinating. I think that it's a good plan. So um, they do say that if you do have a patient who has psoriasis and you're considering biologics for that person and you cannot tell if they have had the two doses of MMR as a child or if their general practitioner can't confirm that from the medical records, it's confirmed that they be given an additional dose of the MMR vaccine. So to do that, if they're already on a biologic, they have to actually be stopped off their biologic treatment for six months prior to MMR vaccination. And then they have to stay off of the um, medication for four more weeks and wait four more weeks before they can attempt to conceive. So that's a fairly long amount of time in reproductive you know, years. So that can be fairly significant. Um, there are uh, some worrisome signs uh, that actually we have had more cases of measles this year, um, which goes along with rubella since any year since 1992. So, you know, the uptick in measles infections worldwide is a little bit concerning, especially because of significant outbreaks in the Philippines, Israel, and Ukraine. So there are large pockets of, uh, of active infection all over the globe. And because of international travel, unvaccinated persons are exquisitely vulnerable at this time. So I can count on zero fingers the number of times I thought about this issue before I read this article. <laughs> Me too, especially with rubella. You know, I think we think about measles a little bit more because it has a higher fatality risk in and of itself. But um, as it affects, to, as it pertains to the effect on on developing um, fetus, you know, rubella is a pretty bad actor as well. And so, something to think about talking to our patients about. So, if I have a 24 year old woman with psoriasis and I want to put her on systemics, mm-hmm. if I want to put her on a biologic. These authors argue that I should make sure she is rubella immune before starting the biologic. Because otherwise, if she's already on a biologic and she comes to me, you know, a year later and says, I want to get pregnant, she has to stop the biologic medicine for six months, mm-hmm. get the MMR, and then wait four weeks before mm-hmm. she can go back on the biologic and also attempt to conceive. So that's seven months of not biologic, not attempting to conceive. Yeah. That's a long time. It is a long time, especially, you know, when people really decide they want to have children, um, the way that, you know, our modern society has sort of delayed childbearing for professional development reasons, and there's nothing wrong with that, but those reproductive years are more compressed, which means that, you know, over half a year of waiting to conceive can be significant. So I think that, you know, we should be thinking about this issue when we're taking care of young women who need biologic therapies. It's a little bit interesting that they lump all biologics together. Like, are the new IL-23 inhibitors, do they blunt your immune response the same amount as the TNF inhibitors? Uh, Probably we don't really know the answer to that. I think that's a really good question. I know that in the early surveillance data, that has not been the issue with the increased risk for infectious diseases. But the package inserts for all monoclonal antibodies 
have the same um, cautions about testing for TB, even though there's no mechanism by which some of these newer, newer drugs would potentially cause an increased risk. Um, it remains in the package insert, and that is the standard we're held to as physicians. So if something was to happen, we would all be kind of in trouble with that. So um, it's kind of murky waters at this point, but I think it's also a good practice just to make sure people are appropriately vaccinated, especially if they're considering conceiving. Though, as we learned a few episodes ago, if they have uh, at least one negative TB, you probably don't have to retest them. That's true. Call back to ourselves. <laughs> All right. Call so back I should, should start thinking about rubella in young women before putting them on a biologic. Reasonable to consider. And then I think we were going to have me do the Dermabond article as well because of um, the two articles back to back, right? Heck yeah. All Tell right. Tell us about Dermabond. All right. So... To be politically correct, I shall use the generic name, which is 2-octylcyanoacrylate. Um, so this is a journal out of the JAD entitled Management of Refractory Paragonodules with, they actually use the, the name Dermabond in pediatric patients. The authors are um, Mohamed I. Ghoul, um, Brett Neal, and Brandon Newell out of Kansas City. So University of Kansas Medical Center, Kansas City. Kansas. Uh, everything's up to date in Kansas City. I know. So um, these uh, authors proposed that, you know, the treatment of paragonodules is challenging in children. And we have noted that it, you can achieve faster healing by occlusive dressing use, but the use of occl occlusive dressings in children has been somewhat challenging. Um, these patients are more likely to rub, scratch, or pick at their skin, um, have a little bit harder time understanding the problems with that. And treatment is often limited in these patients to topical steroids, moisturizers, and adhesive bandages. So they describe the use of the 2-octylcyanoacrylate, which I think is pimpable, by applying it to a paragonodule acting as a barrier to break the itch-scratch cycle. So they cleansed the area with an alcohol wipe and allowed it to dry. They applied then a thin layer of dermabond to the lesion and a thin rim of uninvolved tissue surrounding the lesion, 3 to 7 millimeters. And then they allowed that adhesive to stay in place for 90 seconds to dry completely to help prevent the patient from scratching or rubbing the paragonodule for at least 24 to 72 hours and helping to break that itch-scratch cycle. They noted that children were more likely to accept the idea of the skin adhesive versus a traditional occlusive dressing as the adhesive is they said cosmetically more appealing, but I think what they're getting to is if the kid can tell it's there, it's going to bother them and they're going to want to take it off. But the Dermabond kind of, you know, blends in pretty nicely with their skin and is a little bit less of a problem. Now, they did highlight the thing that came right to my mind when I read the title of this article was Dermabond burns. So <laughs> I was worried about that on broken skin being an issue. And they do highlight that it is natural to feel a slight burning sensation when the glue is applied. It is transient. This can be a difficult thing to overcome with children. Um, it's somewhat complicated also because if you wanted to use like a topical numbing agent or ice, the skin would then have to be very thoroughly cleansed and dried before you would apply the Dermabond because any liquid remaining on the surface of the skin would interfere with the setting of the, um, of the gel. So, but they do think that that is a useful solution and that patients who are seen frequently can also have reapplication done in the office. Um, they included some little figures of the nodules covered with the Dermabond, and then another figure with five days post-treatment with significant improvement. So I think it's an interesting little hack for patients that do have um, nodules and are in the pediatric age group. I think it would also potentially apply to patients who have a little bit of mental um, handicap as well, and who might have a challenge not picking or rubbing at a, an, a lesion that's a paragonodule. I had a, about a 10-year-old boy patient the other day who liked to really pick at his cuticles and stuff mm. and um 
he told us that he was going to pick the heck out of him no matter what we did. <laughs> so I decided that even if we put Dermabond on there, that he would just probably pick it off. Because um, it's not that durable, I don't think. What do you think? Would that have foiled um, him? You know, I feel like if he could get an edge, that would help. Other potential solutions would be, you know, having his parents really trim his fingernails very short. Another solution that may or may not work, given the fact that I think the boy, the child is a boy. Um, some of my patients, and personally myself, I've also noticed that if you have these dip nails, you can't pick at anything because they're too smooth and too thick to do anything with. Dip so, nails? Dip nails, yeah. And dip nails are pretty safe. They just basically apply a layer of, like, nail lacquer, and then there's that little powder that's the color of whatever that you're putting on the nail. And then they just paint the little nail polish, and then they dip it in the powder, and they paint the nail polish, and they dip it in the powder, and then they buff it. So, you know, it's not like where you have to put your hands under the UV light where it would be extremely objectionable to do that to a child. So maybe if maybe it could work a little bit harder with it being a boy. But, you know, anything that makes the nails harder to use as little daggers is helpful. How much does Dermabond cost? Dermabond's kind of expensive. So a quick so, Google search suggests it's about $25 for one of those little, like, surgical yeah. tubes. And not, not inexpensive. And I don't know how you would get reimbursed for this. Right, you know, that's because you're not closing a wound. So, you know, I think that this would have been probably this is kind of a compassionate use thing, would be my guess. Right. And so, like, $25 is sometimes I feel less than Medicaid pays us to see a patient. Yeah, that's probably an accurate observation. So, that can be um, a challenge. But still, um, there you go. Dermabond, put it on paragonodules, see what happens. <laughs> All right. What could make you itchy? Perhaps because you're, you've got cholestatic pruritus. I was going to say perhaps because your colon is static, but that's that's not where cholestatic pruritus <laughs> no. comes from. All right. So this next article is out of uh, the JAD and is called "Cholestatic Pruritus: Emerging Mechanisms and Therapeutics." And the authors include Sagar Patel and Sean Quatra, and these guys are out of Johns Hopkins. So. When I was in residency, which wasn't very long ago, the mechanisms and so on of cholestatic pruritus, as I recall, were somewhat vague and poorly defined. And it turns out they're still rather vague and poorly defined, but they're a little bit better defined now. So I thought this review was kind of helpful, and also because it went into some therapeutic options for um, people who have cholestatic pruritus. So this was a systematic review, and after narrowing down the articles that uh, were appropriate, they ended up with 21 papers on cholestatic pruritus. And they point out that pruritus is reported in 80 to 100% of patients with cholestatic liver disease. And cholestatic liver disease includes things like primary biliary cholangitis, primary sclerosing cholangitis, and intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy. So those people um, get itchy. So just like I learned in residency, it's still thought that there are multiple pruritogens responsible for the pruritus that people get when they have cholestasis. The authors emphasize that histamine is not one of them. <laughs> so I remember when I was hiking in Switzerland once upon a time, like 14 years ago or something, looking at this like road signs and discovering that Switzerland had four national languages none of which is English. So similarly, there's lots of pruritogens, but none of them is histamine, which is a bummer because we have lots of treatments for histamines, but we don't have a lot for some of these other things. So you don't need to treat them with, you know, antihistamines. Um, but the other 
paretogens that are thought to be possible include bilirubin, bile acids, something called lysophosphatidic acid, or LPA, endogenous opiates, so we know that opiates can make you itchy, so if you make your own opiates, those can make you itchy, and progesterone derivatives. So all of those things are elevated in the serum in people with cholestasis. However, they note that the circulating levels of these agents do not correlate well with itch severity. So this is part of the ongoing questions here. So what exactly is going on? And we thought there's, we think there's kind of this interplay among them and so on. They do point out that bilirubin levels in skin do seem to correlate with pruritus severity. So it's possible that the levels in your skin are quite different than those that are circulating, and maybe that's where the money is in terms of trying to figure out the correlation here. Um, in terms of bile acids, in case you were wondering why they think those make people itchy, if you find some mice and you, and you inject them with bile acids, um, then the mice get itchy. And the bile acids seem to work by binding and activating something called TGR5. This is pretty outre, so I don't know if it's bell-worthy. Um, <laughs> you are the bell mistress, so you can decide. Um, so TGR5 is a receptor expressed on itch-encoding sensory neurons. I think, I think it's worth it. Okay, TGR5. There you go. And they also note that if you use treatments that reduce bile acid, that can be effective in alleviating cholestatic pruritus. So pretty suggestive that that's involved. As far as this lys lysophosphatidic acid, or LPA, goes, most of it gets produced from another protein called autotaxin. And they note that unique among all of these things they're talking about, the circulating levels of autotaxin do correlate with pruritus intensity. And these, this autotaxin LPA thing is um, some of the newer things that are thought to be responsible for cholestatic pruritus. So maybe we'll start to develop some treatments aimed specifically at those, which could help. All right. If you have a patient with cholestatic pruritus, what should you do? Well, they say cholestyramine is first line. 75% of patients improve on it. They also talk about rifampin. Um, and they note that rifampin reduces levels of this autotaxin thing. So perhaps that's how it works. And they use it at 300 to 600 milligrams per day. They note a meta-analysis that showed that short-term rifampin therapy was helpful for 77% of people. Well, I'm sorry. 77% of patients reported complete relief from pruritus, and 20% reported partial relief. So that's 97% of people who got some kind of benefit, which is good. However, apparently rifampin is risky if you take it for a long period of time. So if you take it beyond six months, there's a risk of hepatotoxicity. And they say that hepatotoxicity was found in 13% of treated patients within two months. Oof. And these people already have some liver problems, so you got to be careful. So they say, you know, check LFTs and CBCs and so on if you're going to be putting people on rifampin. But at least you can get um, some benefit short term. So if endogenous opiates are part of the problem, then perhaps you can use opioid antagonists. So naloxone and naltrexone have been evaluated and they do help but they can lead to adverse events or adverse effects that are similar symptoms to people experiencing opioid withdrawal so that potentially makes some sense if these people have endogenous opioids which are doing something biochemically in their bodies preventing them from binding to the receptors could give you some withdrawal symptoms 
they also point out that the brain can make new opioid receptors, which then would reduce the efficacy of the naloxone or naltrexone you're putting people on. Sertraline has been studied. So sertraline is an SSRI, normally used in the psychiatric world. But one study reported that 91% of patients improved independent of the medicine's antidepressant effect. There's phototherapy, so UVB. It hasn't been well documented in the literature, but they report one case series that showed response in 13 patients who were otherwise refractory. And I had a patient, uh, I think he was 17 or something like that, who had, I think, primary sclerosis and cholangitis. Really itchy guy. He was on various things from his GI folks that helped with the itch, but he was still pretty itchy. Of course, our topical steroids did nothing. And phototherapy was very helpful for him. So I remember we suggested it, and I got to give props to the resident who was working with me for coming up with the idea. And he felt quite a bit better after a couple months, and his mom said, I wish we had known about this, you know, six months ago. So um, my N of 1 was pretty good for phototherapy. Uh, this article also points out that dialysis and plasmapheresis have been studied and they do work, but they're invasive and expensive. And sometimes the relief is, you know, temporary. And that uh, fibrates helped in a lot of patients, but uh, the, again, the effect was temporary. It only worked while they were taking the medication. So I don't think there's a lot of patients out there with cholestatic pruritus, but there are some and they can be pretty darn itchy and being itchy is really annoying. So these treatments, again, cholestyramine, first line, and then you can think about things like rifampin, naloxone, naltrexone, sertraline, phototherapy, uh, can be hopefully helpful in giving them some relief. And then perhaps we can look forward to future therapies that target things like lysophosphatidic acid or autotaxin. I was thinking when you were um, talking about this article about intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy, um, you know, because some of these agents would be fine, but some of them would be more problematic. Rifampicin and rifampin are both category C for pregnant women. Um, I know that we're kind of moving out of the specific pregnancy classes and going more towards uh, treatment and, and medication choices based off of trimester. But um, I thought that that was a, that's an interesting category of patients to treat. I know the first line agent for that is usually hydroxazine because those patients can tolerate that. But. And ursodeoxycholic acid, right? Mm-hmm. I remember that one because it's from bears. Yep. That is, yeah, that's right, because it's Ursa. Yep, that's yep. right. That's kind of cool. Well, going from the itchy to the uh, twitchy. Wrinkly. Yeah, let's talk about uh, Botox. So this is a really interesting article that, that we have nicknamed Permabotox. Um, so this is uh, entitled Long-Term Cumulative Effects of Repeated Botulinum Toxin A Injections on Brow, t brow Position. And this is out of the Dermatologic Surgery Journal, which is put forward by the American Society for Dermatologic Surgery. And the authors are Doris Hexel and um, Fernando Oliveira Comazato et al., most of which are out of Brazil. And this article looks into the effect of repeated injections of botulinum toxin on glomerular, on glomerular and periorbital areas. Uh, specifically as they relate to brow position. And the way that they did this was they actually have a very good record-keeping system in this institution and had pre-procedure photographs um, dating back, in some cases, as far as 20 years. And they looked at these photos over time and used mapping software to take measurements at several points along the face 
to see what the long-term effect of the Botox injections were on brow position. Um, one of the patients they used to highlight this um, finding was actually a patient here that they show with her first treatment, her pre-procedural photographs obtained in November of 1999, and her pre-procedural photographs taken in November of 2017, and they actually showed that the patient has had an increase in the lift, so an upward movement in her brow position over those past years. Um, the patient also had not had any filler injections or laser treatments or any kind of surgical um, blepharoplasty or brow lift or anything like that. So, you know, just the effect of cumulative treatment with Botox. So this was a very interesting article that highlights something I think many of us have noticed in, in that um, cumulative Botox effects do appear to improve skin quality, and in some cases, specifically as they highlight in this article, um, certain anatomical landmarks of the face. And so these patients, they actually collected a cohort of patients, 26 of these people, um, that they found who had had repeated Botox A injections only to the glabellar and periorbital regions, um, one to three times a year for the past five to 20 years in a private clinic setting that was well-established. And they looked at these patients over time and took digital measurements of their pre-procedural photographs. So all of these photographs would have been taken presumably when the most recent Botox treatment would have had its least significant effect. In fact, they highlight that the majority of these patients had their last Botox treatment six to 21 months before the assessment was conducted. So I think that any of those of us who, who provide or use this cosmetic um, know that six months out from Botox treatment, your Botox is pretty much gone. You know, So this is not residual effects of the treatment. This is long-lasting effects of the modification of those muscle movements of the face. And so they actually found that of the 26 patients, 30% of them had elevations across all measured points. These measured points were um, two points on each side um, that were done using photographs uh, that were digitally uh, stored in this database. And then 73% of these patients presented with elevation in at least two of the four measured points. Interestingly, elevation was more common on the right side. So 69% of patients had elevation on the right eyebrow, and the average elevation per point was larger on the right side as well, um, the maximum elevation occurring on the outer point of the right eyebrow. They did notice that right-handed patients tended to elevate the right eyebrow more than the left eyebrow, and they also found that, of course, statistically, this makes sense, the majority of their patients were right-handed. I got very curious about this because I know personally that I have a cocking eyebrow, <laughs> so I can cock an eyebrow pretty well and quizzically at my residence when they perturb me or my husband when he's doing something strange. Live and, long uh, and You know, and I was, exactly, I was wondering if, um, if this had anything to do with the cocking eyebrow, you know. Of course, I'm a right-handed person, but I can cock my left eyebrow. I, I really can't cock my right eyebrow. So I looked into this, and about 30 to 40% of people can cock an eyebrow. It is a skill that is often um, learned through observation of family members, so it tends to kind of run in families, especially if a mother can cock an eyebrow, it's more common that her children can cock an eyebrow. And um, also learned through observation of yes. classic Star Trek episodes. Exactly, and you can learn to do it if you, if you desire to be able to do this and you can't do it yet, there are videos on YouTube that will teach you how. So the things you learn when you do this, uh, this kind of research. But um, with that small digression, they didn't go into whether it was the eyebrow that people could cock that, you know, had the more residual effects or not of the, of the Botox. For me, so, I know that I, I can always lift that one higher. 
So are you going to try to teach yourself how to do the right one now? I've got to, you know, balance it out. But anyway, um, so I I think this is a very interesting article because it does suggest that regular treatments of glabellar and periorbital rhytids with Botox A over the years actually helps to improve brow position. They specifically did not treat the frontalis muscle in these patients. And um, they, they indicate that this might help to delay inherent eyebrow ptosis and helping to postpone the need for more invasive procedures such as a brow lift. And considering, you know, a lot of patients will come to me wanting their forehead to be completely relaxed, but also not wanting to lose their brow position. I think that this might be a nice argument with those patients to say, you know, over time, you know, your brow position is going to get a little bit better anyway. So let's be kind of gentle with the treatment of the frontalis. The the longer I do um, cosmetics and the longer I, I treat patients with Botox, the less and less uh, aggressively I'm treating the frontalis because I find that you really, you know, have a hard time smoothing out those deeper lines with Botox alone anyway. In patients who really have deep rightids, they usually need some other modality, whether that's microneedling or laser treatment or maybe gentle subcision. I don't like the idea of filler in the forehead. Some people are very adventurous and feel comfortable with that. That's not an area that I feel comfortable doing filler. But I do think that, you know, trying to treat those horizontal forehead lines in a different way and maybe using the the Botox to improve brow position by treating the glabella and periorbital area might be more efficacious. So I did really like this article. I thought it was very interesting. Gentle to the frontalis, but it looks like fairly aggressive with the glabella and canthal line. So they said they used 50 units in the glabella and 70 units in the lateral canthal lines. That seems like a lot. That to be a very confusing, so that was the one part of the article that was a little confusing for me, because they said the patients received an average consensus dose of 120 units of of abobotulinum toxin A in the glabellar and periorbital areas. That does seem very aggressive to me, so I didn't know if this was actually a cumulative dose over multiple treatments, because for me, 70 units in the lateral canthal lines, I feel like, you know, you would not be able to really move a large part of the, that seems very aggressive to me. So I, I would actually love to, to hear from the authors about, you know, what that consensus dose is, if that actually is a cumulative, you know, dose of, of uh, Botox over several treatments, or if it was a, an actual literal description of the amount used in one treatment. But I do think that it is a, an intriguing idea and, you know, it um, adds justification to my, my inclusion of Botox in my wardrobe budget, because I think, you know, it makes it look better every day, so why not? Perfect. (laughs) All right, um, let's talk about something completely different. Actinic chylitis. So the next article I would like to discuss is called Treatments of Actinic Chylitis, a systematic review of the literature. And the authors include... They're out of Italy, so, man, I picked the international guys. (laughs) Michelle Lai, Ricardo Pampena, and Caterino, Caterina Longo. There, hopefully that did them somewhat justification. So this is a systematic review about how to treat actinic chylitis. So they narrowed it down to 49 articles that reported on a total of 789 patients with 843 treated areas. So this is actinic chylitis, so that's like an AK of the lip. Every human... I mean, has basically two lips on their face, barring a few people who've been in some injuries, I guess. Um, So 843 treated areas on 789 patients, though they note that all of their articles had a, quote, high risk of bias when they assessed that. 
Um, so one of the more interesting things I got out of this paper was that actinic highlitis is kind of bad. So a normal random AK on the face, I don't get all that excited about. I tell patients it's got about a one in a thousand chance every year of transforming into a squamous cell carcinoma, which is generally not awful anyway. We cut it out. I mean, don't jump on me about the squamous cell carcinoma thing. I know there's some really bad ones out there, but, you know, random AK doesn't excite me too much. But perhaps a random AK on the lip should. So they point out that actinic chylitis has a malignant transformation rate of 10 to 30 percent, which is a lot higher than your average AK on the face, according to my pimpable. read. Oh, yes. Pimpable. Thanks. Um, and that 95 percent of squams on the lip originate from actinic chylitis. 95%. So that's a lot. Yeah. And so perhaps we should be more aggressive about treating them, or at least maybe I should be more aggressive about treating them. So this systematic review noted that in the articles that they reviewed, there were many different treatment modalities reported, including laser, PDT, like diclofenac, amiquimod, ALA or MAL plus laser, um, fluorouracil, partial surgery, inginol, trichloroacetic acid, um, lots of different ones. However, they excluded conventional surgical treatment because they aimed to focus uh, the review on non-invasive approaches. Okay, so thus they said only partial surgical mod modalities were included, and those were dermabrasion, lip shave, and electrodesiccation with high energy. So I guess a tradition, a conventional surgical treatment is like a vermilionectomy with the labial mucosal advancement flap. And that's what they didn't review because that was apparently too invasive. However, lip shave was included in this non or partial surgery approach. And based on an older article, a lip shave is basically when you use a shave tool to cut off the lip and then you use a labial mucosal advancement flap to repair it. So I'm a little bit unclear as to why that doesn't count as invasive. But anyway, that's what they focused on here. And they also didn't include any articles on cryotherapy, which saddens me. But the reason was because no papers primarily focused on that treatment modality. So there's a gap in the literature because cryotherapy is quick and easy. So if it works better than using an NDYAG laser or something, then maybe we should be doing that. Anyway, let's get to what they found. Um, so this partial surgery thing. So again, dermabrasion, lip shave, and electrodesiccation had 100% complete responses, but only 14 patients reported. So 14 out of 14 had complete responses with zero recurrences. Um, I should point out that overall, in all 843 treated areas in the systematic review, 86% of patients had complete clinical response and 11% had recurrences. So overall, that's pretty decent. Um, I, our treatments for treating actinic chylitis seem to be pretty good. They did have quite a few patients who had lasers in the systematic review. So they had 260 patients who had some kind of laser treatment, and they had a 94% complete response rate. So the most of those lasers were CO2 lasers. So 247 of them were CO2, and 93.5% of people got a complete response with CO2 laser treatment. And then there were a mere 12 people who were treated with erbium YAG, all 12 of them got better. And there was a single patient who was treated with a thulium laser, which I've never heard of before. But maybe this is pimpable. Um, so thulium, I all looked right. this up. Ready? Yep. So thulium is an element with the atomic number 69. And the 
thulium laser is a wavelength of 2010 nanometers. And that one patient did get better. Response. Um, and overall, in the laser group, um, only 6% of people recurred. So lasers, pretty solid. I mean, not literally because they're light, but a good choice. Um, PDT, they had a lot of patients here too, so 238 patients. Only 69% of them had complete response though, and 12.6% recurred. So compared to the laser group, PDT looks a lot worse, at least in this systematic review. Um, fluorouracil, they only had 28 people. 75% of them had complete clinical response. 32% recurred, um, and then 10% of people discontinued the treatment due to adverse effects. So fluorouracil, kind of rough to put on the lips, and maybe doesn't work super great. So they point out in this paper that in general, the sequential use of two different therapies seems to be seems to synergistically increase the efficacy of each therapy. So for example, imiquimod plus PDT. And I would like to remind um, you and perhaps our listeners that in episode 13, we talked about five uh, we talked about PDT and how to make it more comfortable. And the authors of that article pointed out that using 5-fluorouracil for a week before your PDT um, could increase the efficacy without increasing side effects significantly. So that's the story with the systematic review. Looks decent for lasers, especially if you're a thulium laser. Um, but there's a few things I worry about here. Most of these treatment arms, well, they're not really treatment arms because this is a systematic review, but most of the treatment modalities had a pretty small number of people. So the biggest ones were PDT with about 240 and then lasers with 260. So I think that's probably large enough to start to draw some conclusions, um, but only 28 people with fluorouracil and then even fewer patients with all the others, like the partial surgery, 14 people. I think it's tough to draw meaningful conclusions with such small numbers. And then I also worry about publication bias because if the thulium laser group tried the thulium laser on 10 patients before this one and none of them got better, then maybe they just decided not to publish it. So I feel like there's potentially some publication bias here and not to single out the thulium laser specifically. I mean, it might be awesome, but lasers in general, I feel like are subject to this publication bias because um, if I had a laser, then I might want to try using it for a bunch of different stuff to see if it worked. And I might only publish the stuff where it worked. And I think that that's a danger in our literature. I agree, you know, especially um, with some of these newer devices, uh, there is definitely a publication bias for positive results. So we're much more likely to hear when something works out than when something didn't actually work. So I would like somebody to do a nice trial of cryotherapy versus something else of your choice <laughs> and then see whatever else it is that you like whatever yeah. it is that placebo. you like <laughs> i don't know how you placebo cryotherapy um but i, I want to know what cryotherapy <laughs> is i think you know maybe you could do that with um you could i mean there are in the literature we do have defined numbers for some other modalities and you could use something that's already been looked into potentially as a, as a parallel arm, you know, something that's been validated already. But that's an interesting idea. I think cryotherapy is probably one of the most common ways that we treat actinic gyllitis. And the lasers just are not available to a lot of people. Yeah. So if I have a patient with bad actinic gyllitis, I guess I might refer him to some of our laser specialists to do CO2 or something, but I would like to be able to treat it myself. It's a good question. 
I think stay tuned. That's very interesting. All right. And for our final article of this podcast, we have a nice article out of the British Journal of Dermatology, October 2019, titled Age and Gender Appropriate Cancer Screening Risks Missing Most Occult Malignancies in Young Dermatomyositis Patients. The authors are A. Kundrick and G. Folke et al., and they're from Penn State Hershey College of Medicine, uh, Departments of Dermatology and Rheumatology. So the article begins with an introduction about the fact that, you know, we know dermatomyositis is an autoimmune disease that is associated with malignancy. The reported incidence of cancer in dermatomyositis patients ranges from 7 to 30% in adults, but it clusters really around 15 to 20%, so relative significantly elevated risk. We know that this risk is elevated above the baseline population most significantly in the three years prior to diagnosis and the five years following diagnosis of dermatomyositis. So that greatest period of risk is in the first three years after the patient's diagnosed. We also know that patients over 50 years of age have a strong association with the development of cancer, and retrospective analysis has found that most cancers have been identified using blind screening rather than symptom-guided or age-appropriate screening. So we don't really have consensus guidelines on malignancy screening in dermatomyositis patients. The age-appropriate guidelines are outlined by several agencies, including the United States Preventative Service Task Force, or the USPSTF, and the American Cancer Society, or ACS. But these may not evaluate organs susceptible to malignancy in dermatomyositis. So these so, are the things that say get a colonoscopy at age exactly. 40 or whatever yeah. it is. And then Cervical cancer screening at age 21, lung cancer screening at 55 years of age for patients with a smoking history. U.S. Uh, PSDF recommends breast and colorectal cancer screenings beginning at age 50. ACS oh, recommends good. earlier screening. another screenings. 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> ACS recommends earlier screening starting at age 45. Um, so they wanted to look at the incidence and types of malignancy in dermatomyositis patients, specifically focusing on younger patients and trying to estimate the percentage of cancers missed if only age-appropriate screening is utilized. So to do that, they used a technique that's becoming more popular in the literature where they're actually using a claims database to assess um, diagnosis data for a large number of patients. So they used Market Scan Commercial Claims and Encounters database, and they inquired, they queried it from January 1st, 2005 to December 31st, 2015 for all patients aged greater than 18 years of age with at least two separate diagnoses of dermatomyositis by ICD-9 codes at the time, because it was before ICD-10 became available. So when they um, say younger, in young dermatomyositis patients, they're not talking about pediatric patients. No, they're talking about patients between the ages of 18 and 50 specifically. So um, they basically were able to identify these patients and then they looked at the incidence of malignancy in these patients by looking for another entry of an ICD-9 code, remembering this was before ICD-10 became in use in the United States, um, for cancers between two years and three years after the dermatomyositis, sorry, two years before and three years after the dermatomyositis diagnosis, which is the window of highest malignancy risk for these patients. They excluded patients with cancer prior to the study, and the controls were then age and gender matched five to one with all dermatomyositis cases, and then they did that matching again separately with five to one matching for patients less than 50 years of age. And then they looked at the frequency of malignancy between age and gender groups and the frequency of malignancy between dermatomyositis cases and controls by a chi-squared test. They wanted to see how many cancers occurred in organ systems that were not routinely screened by the UST, USPSTF or ACS guidelines. So if you were like a 40-year-old man with dermatomyositis, your age-appropriate screening would be like nothing. Nothing, right, yeah. 
there would be nothing specifically recommended for you. So they were able to find 632 patients with dermatomyositis. There were twice as many females as males, which is kind of typical for this population. Of these dermatomyositis patients, 632 patients, they found 117 malignancies in 65 patients. So that was a frequency of malignancy of 10.3% in the dermatomyositis patients. In this um, case series, they were looking at control group as well. So they had 3,000... 160 case controls um, with 306 malignancies in 162 controls. So that was a um, frequency of 5.1% in the controls of malignancy. So 10.3% in the dermatomyositis patients, that was their malignancy frequency, and it was 5.1% in their controls. So there was a statistically significant increase in lymphoma, leukemia, prostate, lung, ovarian, pancreas, liver, and neuroendocrine malignancies in dermatomyositis patients. 71% of patients, uh, sorry, 71% of malignancies in dermatomyositis patients occurred in organs that are not routinely screened by any guidelines. So this is all dermatomyositis patients. Then they specifically went back and looked at the younger patients. So they had 330 patients that they identified with dermatomyositis under the age of 50, with 48% more females than males. Again, that makes sense. They found 28 malignancies in 21 patients. And that is a malignancy frequency of 6.4% in dermatomyositis patients that were younger. So remember, of all dermatomyositis patients, the malignancy frequency was 10.3%. In this younger group, it was 6.4%. But when you compare that to the malignancy frequency in their age-matched controls, which was 2.8, we still have significant elevations. So more than doubling of the malignancy frequency in patients with dermatomyositis. There was a st statistically significant increase in lymphomas, secondary cancers, leukemias, endocrine, pancreas, stomach, and prostate malignancy in patients with dermatomyositis compared to controls. Here's the scary part. 100% of malignancies in young dermatomyositis patients occurred in organs that are not routinely screened by the ACS or USPSDF. It's because we and, don't normally screen anybody. Who's you know, I thought that first. I thought like, that at first. Um, but the only one of those cancers that would ever be screened by USPSTF guidelines would be the prostate in older men. So all of the rest of them, lymphoma, leukemia, endocrine, pancreas, stomach, those are not routinely screened at all. So, you know, there's a significant um, risk of missing a diagnosis of malignancy in young patients with dermatomyositis if you don't aggressively look for neoplasia. So their discussion indicates that this, you know, these results agree with the well-defined risk for neoplasia in dermatomyositis. Um, while the previous studies emphasized the increased cancer risk in older populations, this study shows also that younger adults also have a considerably higher risk than age-matched controls, and that utilizing an age-appropriate-only screening approach will miss a significant proportion of occult malignancies in dermatomyositis patients. So their limitations uh, were that it didn't distinguish blind versus targeted diagnosis of cancer or how the cancer was diagnosed. Medicare patients were not included, so the actual risk of cancer is likely to be underestimated. And they couldn't capture the presence of myositis-specific antibodies, which might provide insight into malignancy risk. Um, they also didn't have any data on TIF1 gamma, so this is pimpable. So TIF1 gamma is a human transcriptional intermediary factor. When it is positive, it has a indication. Uh, it indicates a much higher risk of cancer in adult patients with dermatomyositis. Similarly, nu nuclear matrix protein two or NXP two antibodies also indicate an increased risk of malignant neoplasia in patients with dermatomyositis. So they didn't have any data about whether or not their patients had these antibodies that would indicate a higher baseline risk, or if they had myositis-specific antibodies negative status. 
patients who have dermatomyositis who have a negative testing for myositis-specific antibodies also increase, indicates an increased risk for cancer. So I think that's all a little pimpable, so I'll do that again. Um, so they wanted to emphasize that we really need to develop evidence-based guidelines to optimize malignancy screening in adult dermatomyositis patients of all ages. Um, they do think baseline broad screening in dermatomyositis patients is appropriate, and yearly repeat screenings should be done in the TIF1 gamma and NXP2 positive patients, as well as those without detectable MSAs, so myositis-specific antibodies, for three to five years. And the screening shouldn't be relegated to older patients because the younger patients also do have an increased risk. And it is important to think about imaging studies for poorly visualized structures such as ovary, prostate, and pancreas. So I think there's a lot of important data in this article, um, one of them being that our young dermatomyositis patients are not out of the woods when it comes to a risk of malignancy. Another being that the things that you would say, well, are you up to date in your cancer screening doesn't matter really for these patients. You have to be broad and thorough to catch the malignancy in these patients. The malignancy frequency in these patients is not negligible. In all dermatomyositis patients, it was 10%. In younger dermatomyositis patients, it was over 6%. And it was more than double the risk of their age-matched controls. And I think that, you know, for those people in training or people who take care of people who have dermatomyositis, knowing about these antibodies that can indicate a greater malignancy risk is important. So again, patients who have negative myositis-specific antibodies, so if they don't have the myositis-specific antibodies, or if they do test positively for TIF1 gamma or NXP2, that can indicate a greater risk of malignancy and those patients should be screened more aggressively and more frequently. So... Would you do like a pan CT and a transvaginal ultrasound and like a CBC and LDH in your think, initial dermatomyositis patient? Yeah, and I think you could probably start out with some laboratory screening. Um, you know, how you approach each individual patient, I think, is going to be based off of a lot of factors, I think. A thorough family history, a thorough symptom history, thorough physical exam. Um, you know, I think that... Certainly, a CBC and an LDH would help to begin the process of allowing you to potentially detect some of the leukemia or lymphoma risks. Um, but I do think that more extensive screening might be necessary on a case-by-case -case basis until we actually have guidelines. So to me, this actually is an invitation um, to our you know, large governing bodies for some kind of a Delphi consensus about what we should be doing for these patients because... You know, the other thing we need to think about is young patients with dermatomyositis may be underinsured or not insured at all. And how do we appropriately work up these patients and keep them safe without, you know, putting them in significant debt? So this is something that we have to think about um, kind of systemically. They do cite that um, there's at least a group of authors who have some guidelines um, about taking care of or doing what they call a broad screening initially. So if uh, any of our listeners are interested in that, the title is The Diagnostic Workup of Cancer-Associated Myositis in Current Opinions in Rheumatology from November of 2018. All right. That's all for today, folks. So um, let's review. Today, we learned that oral apremolast might be effective often label for refractory generalized granuloma annulare or refractory recurrent apthostomatitis. We learned that we should start thinking about whether or not our young women 
who are going to put on biologics are immune to rubella um, because if they're not, then they probably should be before we put them on a biologic. We talked about using 2-octyl cyanoacrylate or dermabond <laughs> to stop people from picking at their perigo nodules. We talked about cholestatic pruritus and how there are some new pruritogens thought to be potentially be involved, including lipophosphatidic acid, and that treatments include things like cholestyramine and rifampin. We learned that lots of Botox might make changes more permanent. <laughs> we learned that actinic chylitis is significantly worse than random actinic um, keratosis, and that uh, doing lasers might be a good idea. And we learned that, quote, age-appropriate cancer screenings will miss most malignancies in people with dermatomyositis, so screen them broadly. Um, before I forget, I also just want to mention if anybody wants to look up some of our older episodes, which you can do at dermospherepodcast.com. We talked briefly about a recurrent aphthostomatitis that was due to a eugenol allergy. That was in episode 12. And we also talked about repeat TB testing with TNF inhibitors may be unnecessary. That was in our episode 11. So once again, that's dermospherepodcast.com. Also a good spot to go if you want to drop us a line. Um, tell us how much you enjoy us or how much you dislike us or say <laughs> there's a particular article you think we should review. We have got a couple um, of our listeners who sent in wondering if we can um, post more links to original articles from our archives. So all of our archives are available and um, some of them have links to the original articles we discussed and some of them don't. And so uh, we are working on including the links for all of them. So thanks to our listeners for that feedback. Um, social media. Michelle is our social media maven. <laughs> I am working on um, expanding our social media presence. So right now our thoughts are to have our kind of top 10 points from each episode released on Facebook and Twitter. I'm still trying to figure out how to use Instagram, to be completely honest. It's quite visually based. So perhaps we can get permission from the authors to release images from the articles or Maybe images from our own practice that are pertinent to the articles. Or just us giving the thumbs up. <laughs> thumbs up and going, go listen to the episode. Also, and... a couple of people have asked me, Dermasphere is spelled D-E-R-M-A-S-P-H-E-R-E. -E -E. So yeah. it's not dermosphere, it's dermasphere, like dermatologists. Yeah, thanks. I, You know, when we were creating the name, I was back and forth on that. So... <laughs> You're not not silly for wondering how to spell it. Um, and we want to thank um, the University of Utah Department of Dermatology for sponsoring the podcast. And we want to thank Texas Tech Dermatology for lending us Michelle for the podcast. And of course, we want to thank you, our listeners, for joining us every fortnight while we go through more of the latest dermatology research. So we'll see you guys next time.